You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Arkansas gave us Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton by way of Chicago. Also gave us Walmart, which destroyed a lot of communities and provides a lot of people with uh, sub-poverty level wage jobs. It also gave us Mike fucking Huckabee, who is waging jihad against Beyonce in an effort to reach out to voters of color and young people in his soon-to-be-laughable footnoted effort to secure the Republican nomination in 2016. Arkansas right now, this weekend, actually, let's pause for a second here, this weekend in Arkansas – Lots of people poured into movie theaters to see Fifty Shades of Grey. Arkansas was number two in the country for pre-sale tickets for Fifty Shades of Grey, which is, of course, the movie about a young woman, uh, a student, having sex with a billionaire, a big power differential there, uh, kinky sex, sadomasochistic sex, and premarital kinky sadomasochistic sex. They even sign a slave contract that has a butt plug clause as all good contracts should. I think people should just generally start slipping butt plug clauses into, I don't know, home sale contracts and home renovation contracts and employment contracts. Just work it in, the butt plug clause, to see if they're paying attention. You know what I mean? You want to make sure that people are reading the contract before they sign it. Put in a clause that allows you to shove a butt plug in them at will uh, and see if they think to strike it, see if their lawyers even notice it. Anyway, lots of people in Arkansas poured into theaters this weekend to enjoy all of this kinky, premarital, heterosexual sex. And more power to them. There's been a lot of writing about how awful Fifty Shades of Grey is. And now we're getting the counterfactuals. And Amanda Hess at Slate, whose work I cite often, who's really smart, you should be reading her, really liked the movie and wrote a defense of it. It's up at Slate right now. You might want to go check that out. But anyway... While this is happening, while straight people in Arkansas are pouring into movie theaters, straight people in the Bible Belt that elected Mike Huckabee, an ordained Baptist batshit minister to be governor, while they're pouring into theaters to watch the sadomasochistic straight love story, the Arkansas State Senate and State House passed a bill that would make it legal to discriminate against LGBT people in Arkansas Make it easier, even easier. It's already legal to fire someone in Arkansas where you can now marry if you're a same-sex couple and then the next morning be fired legally. Your, your right to marry is secured. Your right to a job or to not be discriminated against unfairly in your workplace based on your sexual orientation or gender identity, that is not secured. And the Arkansas state legislature is working to make that right even less secure than it already is by passing a law that makes it – illegal for any municipality or county or city to have its own local LGBT civil rights ordinance. It's called SB202, and it is part of the backlash that we're seeing. In Kansas, Governor Brownback rescinded an executive order that provided workplace protections for state employees who were gay or trans or bi. Yanked that back. It's been in place since 2007. It is now legal for state contractors and state employers for state for state officials to harass or fire people in their employment who are gay, lesbian, bi, or trans, thanks to Senator Brownback. And remember, Brownback means having unprotected anal intercourse without a condom. You're Brownbacking, not barebacking, Brownbacking. 
And in Florida, they're pushing a bill, a hateful Republican state legislator whose name, whose name I can't remember and I'm not even going to cite, is pushing a bill that would make it illegal for trans people basically to use the bathroom. And hilariously, he said that using the bathroom is a choice. Because it's all a choice. Anything a queer person does is a choice. Breathing, digesting food, your internal organs removing waste from your system and eliminating it. That's a choice when a queer person does it. Uh, It's no laughing matter though. This bill would make trans people who are already subjected to appalling levels of violence, particularly trans women of color, even at greater danger. A trans person contemplating using a bathroom in Florida would have to think about whether they wanted to be assaulted using the bathroom – Assigned to them at birth, their birth gender, what's on their birth certificate is the standard that they're supposed to use when they pick the bathroom or going to prison for a year. A trans woman walking into a men's restroom is not going to be safe. A trans man walking into a women's restroom is not going to be welcomed and may be assaulted. This is the backlash, right? We are seeing backlash where they can do it, where they can get away with it. Shitty, shitty places like Arkansas, shitty, shitty places like Florida, shitty, shitty places like what's the matter with Kansas, places like that. It may seem a little hopeless now. It may seem like we can't change things in Kansas or Florida or Arkansas now, but we have to fight the fight even if there are losses along the way. We laid the groundwork for future marriage equality victories by fighting the fight even when we knew in places like North Carolina or Wisconsin – that it was kind of hopeless. We were going to lose at the ballot box. We still made the argument. We still had the fight, and those fights laid the groundwork again for future victories. So we are all pushing back in Florida against this idiotic trans bathroom bill that is going to get trans people killed. We are pushing back in Kansas. John Stewart on his show cited the Santorum campaign and urged people to redefine brownback, which has already been redefined. It's anal sex without a condom. Brownbacking, not barebacking, brownbacking. And we are going to push back in Arkansas. I haven't asked you to get on the phone for a while. I'm going to ask you to get on the phone today or jump on your email. There's a Facebook page, Arkansans Say No to Discrimination, Veto SB202, where they're asking you to get in touch with Asa Hutchinson, Arkansas's governor, and ask him to veto SB202. Particularly valuable if you live in Arkansas, and you can hear the sound of my voice, for you to take a moment and send the email and make the phone call. But if you have any connection to Arkansas, if you used to live in Arkansas, if you've ever thought about vacationing in Arkansas – Even if you've never thought about vacationing in Arkansas, you might want to say that you've thought about it and now you have ruled it out. Let them know you're paying attention and let them know there'll be consequences not just for LGBT people who live in Arkansas, but for Arkansas if they discriminate against their LGBT citizens. If they decide to declare themselves a province of Putin's Russia, that will be noted and there will be consequences. The phone number to call. 501-682-2345. 501-682-2345. Leave a message for Governor H. Hutchinson saying veto SB202. And you can go to governor.arkansas.gov slash contact hyphen info to send an email. Let's not abandon our LGBT brothers and sisters who happen to live in the Bible Belt or other shitty parts of the country. Let, let, let's let them know that we are on their side and we are paying attention and what happens to them there matters to us here. And by us here, I mean those of us who live in blue states. We've got to look out for our friends, our brothers, our sisters who are right now in the red states. Red states that they are, by staying, helping to turn blue and helping to bring to their senses. Once again, that number, 501-682-2345. And the website, governor.arkansas.gov slash contact hyphen info.
do it now. Did you do it? Okay, good. Here we go. Here's the rest of the show. Your questions, lots of them today on the micro and the magnum, also on the magnum. Author Johan Hari on his new book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. We talk about the war on drugs. He also takes a question from a caller today on the magnum. And now here's your show. Hey, Dan. Um, I've been married for a little less than two years to man. We've been together for a little less than eight years. We have a 16-month-old son together. Um, and my sex drive is, is basically completely gone. I have, I have virtually no sex drive at all anymore. I would literally rather, like, uh, like vacuum everyone's house in my neighborhood um, than have sex most of the time, um, which sucks. I really miss sex. We used to have a great sex life. It's, it's, the, it's throwing a huge kink in our relationship. So, yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of other moms, and they also say they're in the same boat. But I would like to know... Does this change, or or am I just at the age of thirty five headed toward this like sad lack of sex drive for the rest of my life? Um, so that's part one, and part two, because I was anticipating what your response might be, which is, have you ever heard of non monogamy? Yes, I have. Um, my husband is totally into the idea of me being with other men. I have been with other men. It completely turns him on, and he's he would like to be with other women too. But um, the problem is that I am incredibly jealous to the point that I, I don't imagine ever being able to be turned on by the idea of him with other women or um, basically just be okay with that happening. The idea actually is making my mouth dry right now. Um, I have a pretty strong physiological response to that idea. So um, he has said, it's totally fine. I don't have to be with other women. If it's just you with other men, that's great. That's perfect. Um, but it doesn't quite feel fair I guess I guess the point of what I'm saying is like may, like you know I thought well maybe if I could be with other men that would like spark my sex drive and maybe that would spark things between us again but I don't know now that we have a kid it just feels a little scary to go down that path I'd love to hear your thoughts thanks So your husband perhaps in a semi somewhat desperate effort to restart your sex life your shared sex life your marital sex life has given you permission to have sex with other men and he's fine with you doing that even if you can't give him permission to have sex with other women. And you're there wringing your hands about whether this is fair or not, that you can't take him up on his very generous but also slightly self-serving offer because if that does kickstart your libido, he will benefit in the end. But you can't take him up on it because it's not fair. Well, it's also not fair at 35 uh, as young marrieds, youngish marrieds, to have your sex life go completely extinct and this hallelujah past that might be able to revive it rejected because by an arbitrary outsider's view, it could be judged to be non-egalitarian. And you need to set that aside and look at the feelings that have been placed on the table. He is fine with the idea of you with other men. It sounds like he is actually turned on by the idea of you with other men. You are not fine with the idea of him with other women and turns you off. It makes your mouth dry out, which I didn't know was a thing, but here we are. So if we just look at the feelings, you are going to do something that turns him on and he is not going to do something that turns you off. You're going to have sex with other guys potentially. He's not going to have sex with other women potentially. What you're doing in that exchange is you're really taking care of each other and putting your feelings first and his feelings first and prioritizing mutual care for one another as opposed to this ice cream has to be divided into equal portions in two bowls for these children. 
you're standing on principle when you should be looking at this from a much more utilitarian frame. What will ultimately benefit your relationship? What will kickstart your libido, which will benefit him? Perhaps this. All that said, uh, your call brought to mind a letter I got that I included in my book, American Savage, from a man whose wife, roughly your age, libido, flatlined, would rather vacuum the whole neighborhood, every house in the neighborhood, and perhaps the sidewalks too, than have sex. And what he did was he went and found a woman in a similar circumstance and had an affair for four years. And then suddenly his wife's libido, and she was in the dark the entire time, wife's libido kicked back into gear. They couldn't explain it. They didn't know what that was about. And he ended things with his affair partner and went on, resumed his marital sex life with his wife who was none the wiser. I cited that as an instance where infidelity saved a marriage because if he had not had that release for those four or five years, if he had not had that opportunity to be intimate, to have sex with someone, he would have had no choice, he wrote, but to end his marriage. So he did what he needed to do to stay married and stay sane. I share that story with you uh, by way of encouraging you perhaps to have not just a conversation about openness or monogamish or you get to, he doesn't, but also a conversation about a don't ask, don't tell arrangement. Sometimes you have to look at your spouse and say, we together are more important than neither of us ever being pantsless in front of another human being ever again as parents, as a couple, this thing we have. So to preserve this thing we have, let's both do what we need to do to stay married and stay sane. Hi, Dan. I'm having the, uh, what I understand from your show to be the very typical predicament of being given a hall pass by my long-term girlfriend, who we have a very great relationship with, and of course she has one also. Decided to do that recently. Why is it that no girls are down to be to sleep with a guy even just for casual sex uh, that's in a relationship. Like, don't sleep with a guy. It's not that they're like, oh, well, I was looking for a relationship. And since, you know, that's not, that's not in the offing, uh, I don't even want to sleep with you. It's like, it seems to be like girls that would normally just have one-night stands casual sex with single guys won't have a one-night stands casual sex with coupled guys. And it's like, I, I know like where I can, what trees I can shake to I could get laid if I really need to. But it's like, I just kind of wish it wasn't so like, had to be this pre-range. It's almost like paying for sex, you know, or even sometimes that it would be that. It's like, I could get laid outside my relationship if I really want to. But I just wish the world was different or more even in the way, you know, that like, why do you think it is that way? Why is there this big asymmetry? Is it just because women are so conditioned that they're not allowed to want sex or desire sex or ask for sex or uh, and that monogamy is like so ingrained in their culture and men are just sort of like, I don't care about monogamy. I just want to get my dick lit. I mean, is, is, that, is that the only, is that all it is? I don't know. It's so frustrating. It's like, I want to be like angry, but I don't know who to be angry at. I guess it's the religion and men dominating women culture that I should be mad at. But anyway, I know that it's the case. You've said that many times. Why? It fucking sucks. It's terrible the way the deck is stacked against straight men, isn't it? I, I, I tease, I tease. This is a real thing. This has come up again and again and again. Couple opens a relationship. She has a line of guys out the door. She snaps her fingers and he has another line of guys out the window and he can't find a woman who will sleep with him. 
because he has a partner. And men don't seem to have a problem with his girlfriend or wife having a partner. So what is up with that? Well, there's a lot up with that. And you identified a lot of what was up with that. The sex shaming uh, that women go through is a huge part of it. Why are women less sort of uh, impulsive? Women are just as horny as men and increasingly it looks like just as kinky as men. But women are less free, less impulsive, less uh, able to just take risks and go for it because they are shamed for wanting sex. Then they're shamed for not wanting sex. There's this slut shaming and virgin shaming or – Reticence shaming. Also, women are at much greater risk of uh, acquiring a sexually transmitted infection, including pregnancy, the original sexually transmitted infection. And then there's intimate partner violence, right? There's all these factors that women consciously or subconsciously are processing when they're weighing whether to jump into bed with a strange man. And it seems that that strange man having a partner doesn't help, that that sort of factors into all of that calculus in a negative way. It ends up in brackets or parentheses or whatever. I forget math. But I think you partly fundamentally misunderstand the use and function of one-night stands. Yes, there are a lot of people out there, men and women and some other point along the gender spectrum, all other points along the gender spectrum, gay, straight, everything in between, uh, who are up for a one-night stand. But most of those people I think subconsciously on some level are hoping perhaps that that one night stand could become something more. And so they're willing to do that, to go there, to perform for that person, to perform with that person, to please that person and take their pleasure from that person in hopes that, that this could become something more, become a two night stand that becomes a three night stand that becomes a four night stand. And when you say that you are partnered, this person who would otherwise be up for having a one night stand with you, that closes. They're, they're not up for it anymore because they look at you and they don't see fun sex and possibly more. They look at you and see fun sex and only that. No potential future anything together should you guys really click or hit it off. And that factors into the calculus as well. My advice, get on websites for open couples, for swinging couples. There are women out there in open relationships and there are really good and they will have a long line of dudes out the door and out the window and you should get in those lines with those women because you're going to have an easier time landing them than landing the strays and randos that you're encountering in the street. And that said, you know, you have the option of flirty reason that when you get shot down, you can pull apart the cognitive dissonance, cognitive dissonance in their having been willing to have a one-night stand with you a second ago, but now that they know your partner, not willing to have a one-night stand with you. And if you draw them out in a flirty, low-stakes, not angry way about that contradiction, who knows? You may be able to pick that lock. You may be able to have them see that fun sex for fun sex's sake is something that they've done before, something you were thinking about doing tonight, and maybe nothing has to be possible. There has, doesn't have to be potential for it to be legitimate and okay. But to pivot to that, you're going to have to be non-confrontational, not angry, not shaming, just very matter of fact and flirty about it. Good luck, poor men's. Hi, Dan. I have a friend and coworker who's very conflicted. He's one of these super conservative, super Christian, glad-handing guys. But he's unadmittedly gay or bi. Everyone knows it. And even the students at our school all know he's trolling. Yet he's totally in denial, maybe even to himself. He's in his mid-30s, way beyond the age when it makes sense to me that 
somebody would be in the closet. We live in a foreign country where American expats are a small minority who all know each other. Believe me, everybody knows that he's gay and that he's trolling for nasty hookups. A little more than a year ago, he was the victim of a horrid gay bashing incident. He was lured into an encounter by some gay haters who posed as hookup bait online. Then they kidnapped him, beat him to a pulp, stole his ATM card, and emptied his bank account. He was tortured for two or more hours by guys who insisted that, quote, this is your fault and you deserve to die. The reason I'm calling you is that my friend refuses to acknowledge the context for this attack. He's still the glad-handing Christian, and he still turns himself into a pretzel, trying to evade telling the full story. When he gets to, quote, this is your fault and you deserve to die, he suddenly changes the topic because he somehow thinks we don't already know why this guy thought he deserved to die. So he wants us to be his supporters, which I emphatically want to be, of course, but at the same time, he's pretending we don't know why those bastards jumped him in the first place. He's obsessed with the situation. In my opinion, that's all the more reason because he can't come clean about why it happened. So it's become tedious in the extreme even to spend time with him. It's been a year now, almost two. I'm getting tired of pretending. And I feel that I could be a better friend to him if we could be more open. So Dan, what should I do? We need to separate out the two issues at play here. One is your friend uh, is gay or bi and doesn't regard you as a close enough friend or a trustworthy enough person to come out to or he's just a tormented, twisted closet case with appalling hangups. From the other issue, that's one issue. The other issue is this horrifying experience he had, this deeply traumatizing experience he had of being robbed and kidnapped and tortured and brutalized for, I don't know, a whole night? How long did that thing go on? That had to go on for hours and hours and hours, staring death in the face. And something you said about that experience kind of stuck in my craw, which was he can't come clean about why it happened. It happened because he was preyed upon by shitty criminals. It happened because he was kidnapped and abused and tortured by asshole thieves, by monsters. That's why that happened, because there are shitty people out there in the world. It didn't happen because he's gay. Millions and millions of people every day use hookup apps to meet people. Straight people too, all over the Tinder, right? And gay people use hookup apps. And sometimes people meet up and are taken advantage of by the stranger that they're meeting. And that is an inherent risk. That's why we tell people to meet in public. That's why we tell people to let someone know where you're going and who you're with and who you're meeting and have that first meeting be in public. Again, in public. Did I mention in public? Yes, in public, that first meeting. But sometimes bad shit is going to happen because there are bad people in the world, not because your friend is gay. Bad shit happened to Lacey Peterson. She was murdered by her husband, Scott Peterson. They were straight, and they didn't meet on some gay hookup app 
in some foreign country. So it's not just the fact that he's gay or the fact that he's not ready to come all the way out yet or he's using this tool to meet people that hundreds of millions of other people all around the world are also using to meet people. That's not the problem. The problem is he was preyed upon and traumatized and you need to have a little bit more empathy and sympathy for that. While I think you have a right to be annoyed and a little impatient and frustrated by having to pretend that you don't know something that you do know. That's obnoxious. You know that he's gay. It doesn't sound like you have a lot to lose. If he's gay and not out to you, you're not that close, really. I would, if I were in your shoes, I would get my hands on recent Lovecast Guests, Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian. You say he's an evangelical Christian or raised evangelical Christian. Get him that book and give it to him and say, I would love for us to be able to talk about this about the fact that you are gay and I want to be a better friend to you than you've allowed me to be up to this point. So I got you a gift. I got you this book. And I'm here for you. And if that destroys your friendship, if he can't deal with being in your presence, if he can't, if he's such a tormented, shut down, emotionally stunted closet case that he can't bear the gaze of someone that he knows, knows, someone he knows, knows he's gay then you probably need to back away from this relationship. The way to ease your frustration at this game playing is to not spend much more time with this guy. To wall it off. Be courteous, to be polite, but to not engage. Not think of him as a friend anymore. And all that said, cycling back to this insanely traumatic experience, empathy and sympathy. What was done to him was appalling, scarring, and will have a lasting impact in how he moves through the world and how safe and secure he feels with other people, including you. And you need to not attribute what happened to him that night to his being hum- to his gayness or the fact that he's closeted, the fact that he's meeting people online or any of the rest of that. He was preyed upon and victimized. It happened because some people are vicious, predatory assholes. And he was victimized by a pack of them. That's a different and separate issue from the way he's victimizing himself by not coming out. And you have to learn how to talk about them as two separate issues, particularly when you talk about them with him. Hi, Dan, in the tech-savvy activist youth. I'm a gay man living in a medium-sized northeast city. My question is regarding my husband and I are going through an issue right now because I've decided to do some light porn work. Uh, Thing is, um, we've hit a lot of financial difficulty lately, and I was approached with an opportunity to do live webcam muscle modeling for a website. Uh, My husband initially had no problem with it, and he thought that it was a great way to make extra money, and he decided that he wanted to do it too. Now, because he wasn't selected as a model for this website. He's up in arms and he thinks that there's a problem and that I shouldn't do it and that we don't need the money bad enough and that uh, there is some other way. Um, I think that the reason that he doesn't want me to do it is because he feels as though um, I'm getting more attention and it's something that if, if he were able to do the same thing, 
then everything would be okay. But because we both aren't doing it, then obviously it's a problem. Um, we've gone through similar issues like, um, you know, I'm an amateur bodybuilder. Uh, all of a sudden he wants to be an amateur bodybuilder. I have a pretty big social media presence. Now all of a sudden he wants a big social media presence. So there always seems to be this competition with regards to things that have anything to do with like physicality or bodies or, you know, just having people show us attention for physical attributes. Um, how do you think I should handle this? Because I don't really want to quit this job because the money is great and we need the money, but I don't like this conflict and I don't know how to get this thing in the bud. It's sad that your partner is so insecure and so competitive that he regards Every, every, it seems everything, a social media presence and profile, uh, your body modeling as, you know, if it's better for you, if you have more of it, then he's somehow diminished. Um, and that's not true. You would think your partner would be delighted to have a, a boyfriend who was so desirable. Uh, and there's always going to be imbalances in a relationship. There have to be things that he brings to the table that are better than some of the shit you bring to the table. Maybe you have better abs. Maybe he makes better lasagna. Who knows what those things are? But there are things that he is better at, more skilled at, and he needs to learn how to take pride in those things and not try to cut you off from the things that you are better at and more skilled at and more in demand for. And if he can't get there, this relationship is not going to survive. It's not a healthy dynamic. You can't have it if I can't have it. You can't be this if I can't be that as well. You are not twins. You're not siblings. The world is not comprised of your parents dividing things up equally and fairly for you to prevent conflict between you. He has to be a mature adult man who can be realistic about the fact that in all same-sex, opposite-sex couples, there's usually one who's somewhat objectively hotter than the other, and I say that as the less hot half of the couple that I am in. Do I steam with resentment about that? No, I love it. I feel bad for Terry that he has to be with me. He needs to get to that place. Your boyfriend needs to get to that place. If he can't get to that place, you might need to show him the door. In the interim, stick to your guns. I'm doing this. I was asked to do it. We need the money. I want to do it. You need to suck it up and be an adult about it. And we can't. That's a sign that you need to pull the plug. I've been married uh, 15 years and I have two kids. My wife never had a significant libido throughout, but I did. And uh, she has sort of stuck with that. We do a, a regular sex on schedule on Mondays. The problem I'm having is that I feel that there's no desire there for me. And it's a hard thing uh, for me to live with is having a partner that has no desire. She's also said that if I ever went out or had a monogamish uh, relationship, like you talk about, um, that that would not be acceptable. So I feel trapped, and I'm just curious what you might suggest for somebody who has normal libido, married long-term uh, with somebody uh, who has no libido. It would be easier to give you advice if your wife didn't fuck you once a week on a Monday on schedule. Routine, perhaps grudging sex, but regular sex. She allows you to masturbate inside her once a week, whether she likes it or not, and she likes it not. 
if you were having no sex with her, I could tell you to do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane if you want to stay married. I could tell you that she doesn't have a right to unilaterally declare an end to your sexual life. But she hasn't unilaterally declared an end to your sexual life. She is willing to lay there and take it once a week. And as is sometimes the case in these low libido partners, they make it very clear that they would rather not be doing this, but they will do this if the alternative is being cheated on. And that's also not sexy. That's also not arousing and not fun. And so I'm going to advise you to do what I actually advised a woman who wrote me at Savage Love last week to do. Quite controversially, there's 500 comments actually on this particular column. Um, she signed herself bored in bed for an unbearably long time or bib fault and she'd been married to a man for 30 years. The sex was terrible. She'd never had an orgasm. Any effort to spice things up, to introduce a vibrator, introduce some mild kink were rejected out of hand and she is just now, 30 years into this marriage, really not happy at the prospect of going to the grave without ever once having great sex with someone who turned her on and got her off. But she doesn't want to cheat. Her husband wouldn't want her to cheat. It could upset uh, everything. It could destroy their marriage. And she does love him and she values what they have together. What should she do? And at the end of the column, and this somehow flew over a lot of people's heads, I advised her. I told her that she might have an easier time not cheating, an easier time not going out there and trying to find sex with another guy, an easier time not seizing the first opportunity to cheat that came her way. If she gave herself permission to cheat, if and when an opportunity to cheat discreetly and with minimal deceit came along. And I'm just going to read a little bit of my advice for Bibfault. Telling yourself it will never happen, that you will never have good sex, means living in despair and despair isn't good for individuals or marriages. But telling yourself that it might happen, but only if the planets have all aligned perfectly, you're out of town, it's someone you trust, you won't have to actively lie, that means living in hope. And hope is good for individuals and marriages. And knowing, because you gave yourself permission, knowing that you can cheat if and when the right opportunity presents itself will make it easier for you to resist cheating, to resist doing something reckless when the wrong opportunities present themselves. That was my advice for Bib Fault. Married 30 years, husband at home, some shitty, awful, rotten, no good, unsatisfying sex with him, still a regular part of her life. And that is my advice for you as well. 15 years into this marriage and let your experience, let his experience, other listeners stand as a warning to you. The libido thing is important and it gets more important as time goes on. If you are going to be in a sexually exclusive relationship and that is clearly what the caller's wife wants, probably what the caller wanted too at the outset, a sexually exclusive relationship, you need to establish sexual compatibility recognizing that over time, over the decades, that can wax and that can wane and having some compassion and understanding for those times and some patience during those times, illness, childbirth, aging, but establish sexual compatibility. It's crucial or you will be calling me in 10 or 15 years, if I'm still doing this in 10 or 15 years, with this exact problem where all the options are bad, never having good sex ever again, being barely tolerated while you masturbate inside or on top of someone, and contemplating cheating and exploding everything that you have with this person that you value. Because you do love them and you have a family together and you're raising kids together. If you don't want all that imperiled 10, 15, 20 years into your marriage, establish sexual compatibility before you get married. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old bisexual female living in Norway. Um, I have a question about what to do when you snoop through someone's emails or Facebook messages and then find something that you want to talk about, but then you feel bad because you probably weren't supposed to be reading that in the first place. Uh, so maybe to give you a little bit of background, I moved to Norway three weeks ago to be with my boyfriend, who we've been in a on and off relationship for about five years. In that time, we've been traveling and doing different things. And I would say about two years ago, when I, I first left to go traveling, he started dating somebody else and told me about it. And I was obviously devastated and very upset about it. And since then, he's still been talking to her. And it shouldn't really matter because she lives in a different country, but I still get upset. And like last night, I was doing something on his computer and the Facebook was open and I just started reading the messages from her. And I just got so angry inside and really frustrated because I knew that, that they're still talking, even though I don't like her and I don't like him talking to her. The other thing is on this last message, he did tell her that I had moved to Norway which I think is a pretty big move to do, to be with somebody else, to move all the way across the world for someone. And then to see him still talking to her, it makes me so upset. I mean, at least I'm happy he mentioned me, but I'm also upset that he still asks questions to her. How's her life? Blah, blah, blah. And does he even need to continue talking to her? Am I just crazy to tell him to stop talking to her? When I ask him about it, he says he doesn't have that many friends and it's just nice to talk to somebody, but can't he talk to somebody else? It's just hurting me inside. And every time I see these messages, I get so angry. And for me, I've also had relationships during these five years, but I've cut off all communication with all of those people I've been with. You snooped and you didn't find any evidence that he was cheating on you. You didn't find any evidence that they were still flirting or sexting or conniving, making plans to get together and hook up. What you found was that your boyfriend is on good terms, friendly terms with his ex, with a woman that he cared about and still cares about. That's a good sign. You know, it's a bad sign when you snoop and you find that your boyfriend or your girlfriend is flirting uh, and making plans to get with their exes or some other person or persons when you're in a closed relationship, default closed or negotiated closed relationship. That should be opt-in people. Make a note of it. Or you snoop and you find your boyfriend is shitty to his ex, is stalking her, is saying terrible things to and about her, to everyone. You don't want to be with someone who is planning to fuck his ex. You also don't want to be with someone who hates his ex. It's better to be with people who can maintain good and friendly relationships with their exes. They're going to be better partners. They're going to be better currents than someone who's shitty to his ex. So you found evidence of nothing that should be upsetting you. You found good signs about this guy. Not planning to fuck her, doesn't hate her, good sign. And that point where you said you cut off all communication with your exes, that's a red flag. For, when I meet a guy who is not on good terms, not even friendly chatting terms with his exes, I think, oh, my God, he's the common denominator in all this relationship drama. He's probably crazy and toxic. I don't think, what a stand-up guy. He's a good guy. He's shitty to everyone he's ever dated. Anyone who's ever been fool enough to crawl into bed with him, he has cut out of his life. When it went south, what an awesome dude. I think what a batshit, likelier than not, nut. So not get the fuck off. 
My ex-boyfriend cuts my son's hair and my husband's hair. My ex-boyfriend of five years came to our wedding. Stays at our house when he comes to town. Because we are grown-ups and we are secure in our current relationships and we value our past relationships. We wouldn't be who we are right now in the current with our current partners if it weren't for the experiences we'd had in the past with our previous partners. You should be grateful to this woman, not psychotic about her. And now you need to be the reasonable human being. I, I, you know, I want to throw you a bone. I get it. You moved to Norway three weeks ago. You moved, you uprooted your whole life. You moved all the way around the world. That's major. Right? You've made a major investment in this relationship and it perhaps makes you feel a little insecure about the choices that you've made that he is still in contact with this ex because if your thing with him should come to an end, perhaps because of that ex, you've got a lot of egg on your face and you're trapped halfway around the world and you're going to feel very foolish and possibly look foolish in the eyes of friends or family members who warned you not to do this. Right? You need to let all that fucking go because you know what? is going to make it ending likelier you being crazy controlling and insecure about this guy's relationship with his ex. It's going to make you less attractive. If you say to him, you have to choose between me and her. You can be with me or you can have a cordial relationship with your ex, but not both. That's going to be a red flag for him that he has invited into his house and invited to move halfway around the world to be with him, a crazy, insecure, controlling person. You're going to show him a side of yourself that's less attractive even, in my opinion, than a little routine, regular, ought-to-be-expected snooping. So suck it up. Look on the bright side. You moved halfway around the world to be with a good person who can be in a relationship and exit that relationship on good terms. That's a good sign. Every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to end until one doesn't. This one could end. You will ensure its end if you pull this like power trippy garbage about his ex, but it could end of its own accord. You guys could spend a couple of years together, five years together, and then part. And what do you have to expect then if that should happen? A good and cordial relationship with your ex who lives in Norway. What a valuable thing to have going forward in your life. That means you have a place to crash if you ever want to go to Norway. That means you have friends in Europe that you can still hang out with and see. Your ex in Europe that you can still hang out with and see because you are a mature, secure adult who knows that there are no guarantees. He could never speak to his ex again. This relationship with you could still end, right? Eat that, admit that, own that, and stop treating his relationship with his ex as some sort of talismanic, jinxy sign, something that you have to correct or control for or stamp out. The only thing you're going to stamp out if you pull that move is this relationship that you've already sacrificed so much to be in. Don't make that mistake. Hey, Dan. I am a 35-year-old lesbian. Uh, So about a year ago, I started sleeping with a colleague of mine. At the time, I was in an open marriage, and my wife and I were having serious trouble. The beginning of the affair was awesome. She was just Everything that my wife was not, I felt completely safe with her and satisfied in so many ways. Eventually, my wife and I divorced, not because of this affair, but for all of the other reasons that weren't right for one another. With regard to my lover, I am left with a nagging question. What do you do when you found an amazing partner who is just way too young? (laughs) My lover's 24, 
And I struggle with our age difference more than anything else. It just, in you know, some ways she's way more evolved than I was at 24, but in other ways I see a 24-year-old novice and I feel old and weathered in comparison. I realize others with much greater age differences have had successful partnerships, but it's a major roadblock for me. I mean, I want to be with an equal. I want someone who brings to the table an equal amount doesn't you know, necessarily have to be financially, but emotionally. And I just don't think that someone so young, lacking in so much life experience, can do that for me, even though she literally rocks in every other department. So what do I do? Do I walk away now and try to find someone who's more appropriately aged? Or do I just enjoy the aspects of us that are awesome and try to ignore the times when I feel more like a parent than a partner? Hello. How are you, old lesbian? <laughs> Am I'm just like a wretched old lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> Cradle robbing old lesbian, eating some twenty four year old pussy. Can you believe it? <sighs> no, it sounds awesome. You know what the problem here is? You have it in your head that if if you can't game it out where you're together when you're little old ladies, if you can't see 50 years with her, then you can't because of sex negativity and the prejudice about long-term relationships over the value that a short-term relationship can bring into the lives of both partners. You can't just – you can't see what's what's sitting in your lap or what's chewing on your lap, which is an right. awesome <laughs> woman that you may be with for the rest of your life or you may be with for just a year or two because you're at such different stages of life. But even if you are just right. with each other for a year or two, but they're two great years and you guys part as friends and you're a part of each other's lives for the rest of your lives, that has yeah. value. And that's, that's valuable. That's worth that's sticking valuable. around right. for. But but then every, you know, every once in a while, you, you, you hear about someone like Christopher Isherwood who at 48 met 18-year-old Don Picardi and they were together for 33 years. For the rest of Christopher's life. Because I guess the problem I think have is that I'm focusing on some of the things that I'm just not getting, which is, of course, the opposite of what you should be focusing yes. on the things you gain. Right. Yes, yes, yes. That's very astute. And people do that and tear their relationships apart because we take for granted what we've got and we, you know, stew and wring our hands about what we don't got. Yeah. Do you find those things that you're missing in other people and this? like a totally healthy way of viewing your relationship. Perhaps you find them in other people. Perhaps, you know, you say she's so young and lacking in life experience. Well, in five years, she will have five years more life experience racked up and right. she will be almost 30. Right. And if you're still a part of her life, you will benefit from that gain in life experience. And I need to relax about the fact that in five years, I'm going to be in my forties. Hey, right? I'm, I'm in my fucking fifties. If you don't relax about being in your forties, I'm going to kill you. Everyone, everyone staring down their 40s has to be chill about it now or it'll make me cry. No, it's so true. But you've been with someone. I think sometimes that's where my head gets stuck, you know, stopped up. Like you invest five years with someone and then you're five years older. And to her, it's not that big of a deal because then she'll simply be in her middle 20s. But I'll suddenly find myself perhaps single again in my 40s and I just need to chill out about that. And you know what? You could go find an age-appropriate partner and it could, and you could dump this woman, this adult human being that you like very much and you click with to go be with someone who's more age-appropriate, who isn't as much fun, isn't as exciting, doesn't right. really do it for you and gets run over by a bus in two years and then you're single or five years and then you're single at 40. You can't control for I might be single when blank. Yeah. All no, you can control for is, right. is this person good for me, bad for me? Do we bring each other more joy than grief? Because there's always grief. 
are we better people for being together than not, you know, than we would be away from each other? And if the answer to all those questions is better to be together than be together and stop, you know, I have a friend who does this all the time. He runs the computer program. That's what I call it. He runs the program so that he can get to the breakup that he sees coming in two or four or five or 10 years. And then he ends a relationship because he can anticipate the inevitable end. And it just becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where he's always dumping these great guys Right, because he can he can picture the, why the relationship might end, and so the relationship then does end. But he's doing that, right? Don't do yeah. that. That's so stupid. It's so self defeating. Yeah. And you know, when I tell him that it's really that the issue really is he doesn't want to be with somebody long term. He likes meeting and falling in love and then starting over again. And right. he just has to justify it in this way that honors the long term commitment because because it's so stigmatized to prefer short term relationships. Right. But you don't necessarily want a short-term relationship, but you're disqualifying this person for bullshit, arbitrary reasons. She's not everything that I might want where our ages are different. A lot of research coming out showing that differences hardwired baked into a relationship are actually good for relationship longevity. You don't want to be with somebody just like you. Yeah, that's for sure. You don't want to be with another (laughs) elderly lesbian is what I'm saying. Another ancient, dried up old dyke pushing 40. That's not what you want. You want that dewy 24-year-old brand-new lesbian pussy. I do. It's true. Enjoy. Okay. I'm going to relax. I'm going to relax. Don't look a gift lesbian horse in the lesbian horse vagina. All right? <laughs> Noted. Thank you so much. Bye. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I hope you can help me with love and weed. I'm a 25-year-old woman living in the Northwest. I grew up being taught that drugs are bad that to get caught doing drugs would ruin my chances at getting a job. While in college, I was anxious and inexperienced and competitive the few times that I had tried smoking. And so when I did, I would go too fast and while drinking heavily, which would ultimately be a bad time. I met my current boyfriend of three years during senior year. I knew he was a stoner, but I loved him. And I do still love him. We've been together since. While we would hang out, he wouldn't smoke in front of me sometimes. He knew that I felt sort of awkward about the situation. We finally moved to get out of college and into our own apartment together. The situation finally arose where he got a job offer that was dependent on a drug test. He asked me for a sample of my urine and I said no because I've heard that these tests can detect gender and I didn't want to get involved in falsifying a test. So he ultimately used synthetic urine. This was a really stressful time in our relationship because I didn't want to get involved, but being with the guy who's great, who smokes a lot, I am involved and it could put me in criminal problems. So I put a ban on smoking in my apartment, which I thought was fair since I pay rent. He would just smoke out the window and I still would get furious. A strange turn of events occurred where In my new job, which is a really small company, I found my boss's piece. And I know I'll never get tested because I know my boss smokes. So now I feel like a big hypocrite because I want to start smoking. But I was a controlling bitch to my current boyfriend about making him not smoke. So I was really wondering if you guys could help me sort out all of this. Because I want to be a GGG girlfriend where... He can be free to do whatever he wants, and we are in love. 
Johan Hari is the author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, published by Bloomsbury as a hardcover ebook and audiobook. It is excellent. It is getting amazing reviews everywhere. And he joins us by phone from West Hollywood, California. Hey, Johan, how are you? Hey, Dan. I'm so glad to be with you. So this woman, yeah. she was a controlling bitch. She took a really hard line, and now she doesn't know how to walk that back. She's like the government. She's like the war on <laughs> drugs itself personified. Exactly. She's making the journey that our whole culture and our whole society has to make. You know, for a hundred years, now a hundred years since drugs were first banned in America and Britain. And for a hundred years, we've been told this, these particular stories about drug use, about drug addiction, about what it all means. And yeah, and a huge credit to her that she's making this journey. You know, she should be really proud of herself. When people are moving in the right direction, as the people of the United States are, we shouldn't be kind of, you know, calling, you know, shutting them down and saying, well, you were a fool all this time. We should be totally congratulating them. We should be saying, hey, I'll get you some pot myself. I'll send you some cookies. <laughs> is that the right direction? Well, you know, is the right direction towards pot drug use or is the right direction toward chilling the fuck out about drug use? I think it's definitely the second. I personally am virtually a Mormon. I don't use any drugs at all anymore. But yeah, it really struck me. When I started writing the book four years ago, you know, I had a quite personal reason to do it. We had a, a lot of drug addiction in, in my family and my, my ex-boyfriend. And one of my earliest memories was of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I realized... A bit like your caller, that even though I thought I knew quite a lot about this issue, I realized there were just so many really basic questions that I didn't know the answer to. Mm -hmm. Like, why are drugs banned? Why do we carry on with the drug war even though it clearly isn't working? Um, what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And what are the alternatives? And I ended up going, as you know, for the book, I ended up, I kind of set out thinking, oh, I want to find the answers to these things. I didn't realize it would take quite so long. I ended up doing a kind of 30,000 mile, mile journey across nine countries and meeting this incredible range of people from a transsexual crack dealer in Brooklyn to a scientist who spends all his time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see what happened to uh, the only country that's ever decriminalized all drugs. Well, you know, wait, wait, crack. I Fe feeding hallucinogens to mongooses. That was my fallback career. Uh, if the advice column thing didn't work <laughs> out. Exactly. It turns out mongooses do like hallucinogens but only in a very limited situation. Basically, if you give uh, mongooses to hallucinogens just as they are normally, when their lives are normal, they don't like it. They kind of twitch a bit and they don't like it. But if you give it to them when one of their partners has just died, they'll eat that shit up and they'll, they'll trip for ages. So if they're grieving, they like hallucinogens. Okay, normally I, they I, don't. I broke in and interrupted you right before I think you began to talk about Portugal. What has Portugal done? The year 2000, Portugal had the, one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. It was mind-blowing. And they, every year they did the American way more and more. They arrested more people. They rounded up more people. They imprisoned more people. And every year, the problem got worse. And one day, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they said, look, we can't fucking go on like this, right? We've got to, we've got to figure out what would actually solve this problem. So they got together a panel of scientists and doctors. And they said, just figure out what we should actually do. And we'll agree in advance that we'll just do whatever you recommend. So the panel goes away, it comes back and it says, look, decriminalize everything from cannabis to crack. But, and this is the really important second bit, take all the money we currently spend on arresting, harassing, imprisoning drug users, take all that money and spend it instead on really good drug treatment. 
And it's not a drug treatment, mostly not what we think of as drug treatment in America. They do have residential rehab, they do have psychological support, but much more, it's about getting people purpose and meaning in life in the real world. So think about it like you and me, we could be drunk now, right? We could be stoned now, we could be high now, right? The, the reason we're not is because we've got something to do. We've got something we want to be present for in our lives. We've got jobs, we've got people we love, we've got a purpose. The whole purpose of what happened in Portugal, the decriminalization, was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to wake up for in the morning. And it worked. Spoiler alert and jumping to the end, Portugal has not <laughs> seen a rise in drug abuse. It's actually seen despite now the the, the legality or the you know, the fact that you can buy just about every drug that you'd want legally, there's been no spike. Like the fear mongering is always, oh, if we legalize it or decriminalize it, everyone's going to be a heroin addict. And, you know, to your point, I live in Seattle. I could walk out the front door of my office and have some heroin in about five minutes. If I wanted it, I don't. The streets here are paved with heroin, but people aren't heroin addicts generally because people aren't. But people who are, are? It, it, well, it's, it's more than you're saying, Dan. It's not just that there hasn't been a spike. Injecting drug use has fallen by 50%, 50%. Every major study shows addiction is massively down. One of the most moving interviews I did for the book was talking to this guy called Juan Figuera, who led the opposition to the decriminalization. He was the main drug cop in Portugal. And he said, you know, all the things that a lot of people quite reasonably will be thinking, which is surely if you decriminalize, you'll have all sorts of problems. And he said to me, Everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt ashamed that he'd spent 20 years arresting and harassing drug users. It really struck me. Every country I went to that moved beyond the war on drugs, no one, virtually no one wants to go back. Like once it's over, people just see it so much better. Okay, so this woman who called in, the caller, she is moving past her own personal mm. war on drugs, her own war on pot with her boyfriend. What should she say to him? I was wrong? Can I, the, Portugal basically said that. They convened a commission to tell them that they were wrong and they should she convene a commission should she download the report from the portuguese commission and just hand it to her <laughs> boyfriend and say i ditto i agree with this you can smoke pot in my apartment now <laughs> i think it's a really fascinating one of the statistics that really blew my mind the u.n office of drug control who are the main kind of drug war body in the world even they admit 90 percent of all drug use is non-problematic currently illegal drug use is non-problematic means you don't become addicted you don't get a health problem doesn't fuck up 90%. That's an enormous amount. And the 10% who are harmed, there's a very different cause going on that we can talk about if you like. So I would say, you know, I would, if I were her, I'd say, like most people in this society, I was heavily propagandized to. And for a hundred years in my culture, we were told a bullshit story about drugs, the drug war, drug addiction, all these things. I'm trying to learn a better way and I'm trying to learn a better story. And, you know, I want to change slowly. And I really, really want to get high. She needs to end with that. <laughs> well, you know, it's really worth saying, though. You know, I don't drink alcohol, right? No one would think it was weird, but I don't drink alcohol. And yet I'm against alcohol prohibition, right? You don't have to want, ever want to use any drug. I never want to use any drug ever again. I'm against the drug war because it causes horrendous human catastrophes far greater than any drug use. You wouldn't argue, though, that drug use is harmless in all cases. There are clearly people who are addicted. There are clearly people who, for whatever reason, they don't have enough going on in their lives, is one theory that you advance in the book, uh, who destroy themselves with drugs. And I've seen, I've seen a doctor destroy himself yeah, with drugs who had plenty going on in his life. Yeah, I've seen my own relatives destroy the drugs. This is absolutely not about uh, saying that, you know, 
drug drug addiction should be trivialized. In fact, if you really take it seriously, you have to look at the real causes. And of all the things I found out for the book, this is the thing that most blew my mind and has most changed the way I live, actually. If you'd said to me four years ago, what, let's say heroin, what causes heroin addiction, right? I would have looked at you like that was a kind of stupid question. I would have said, well, heroin causes heroin addiction, right? Obviously. We've been told a story for 100 years about what causes heroin, but it turns out it's just wrong or such a small part of the picture that it's a huge distortion. If we think, if you, me, and the first 20 people listening to this show, we all use smack together for 20 days because there are chemical hooks in the drug. On day 21, our body would physically need the drug and that's what addiction is, right? The first thing that kind of alerted me to the fact that that may not be right is if you or me step out onto the street after doing this interview and we're hit by a car and we're taken to hospital, and we break our hip and we're taken to hospital, it's quite likely we'll be given a huge amount of diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's medically pure heroin. It's much better heroin than you're going to buy on the streets in Seattle because it's medically pure as opposed to cut by dealers. You'd be given it for a really long period of time, right? Well, that's happening every, anywhere anyone's... Yeah, exactly. Anyone who's listening to this, near them, lots of people in hospital are being legally given heroin. Now, if what we believe about addiction is right, those people should leave hospital and try to score on the streets. They should leave as addicts, right? But Mm -hmm. you will have noticed that never happens. So when I learned that, I thought, "Mm, that seems so weird. I didn't know what to do with it. Until I went and met a guy called Bruce Alexander. He's the most incredible man. He's a professor in Vancouver. He explained to me, The idea of addiction we've got comes from a series of experiments, really simple experiments were done early in the 20th century. Anyone can do them. If you're listening to this, you can do it. Really easy. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and it's got two water bottles. One is just water and one is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always kill itself. So you think, there you go. That's addiction. Bruce comes along in the 70s and says, well, hang on a minute. We're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except drink the water, the drug water. Let's do this differently. So Bruce built Rat Park. Rat Park is like heaven for rats, right? They've got anything a rat could want is in Rat Park. They can have <laughs> loads of steak, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, anything they want. But they've also got both the water bottles, the, the normal water and the drug water. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, the rats don't like the drug water. They hardly ever use any of it. They never overdose and they never use in a way that looks compulsive. What Bruce says is, and there's loads of human examples, but what Bruce says is, this shows that the way we think of addiction is wrong. Addiction is not a moral failing. Addiction is not a disease. Addiction is an adaptation to your environment. If we are cut off, if we are disconnected as human beings, we will bond with something. We will seek to bond with something that gives us pleasure. And if we can't bond with the people around us, We'll bond with it. It can be a roulette wheel. It can be porn. It can be smack. You will bond with something that gives you pleasure and you will obsessively return to it. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And we need to think really differently. One of the reasons why Portugal has succeeded so well in reducing addiction is because they learned that lesson. But think about the opposite of it. When I went to Arizona, I went to this prison where I go out with women who are forced to go out on chain gangs wearing T-shirts saying, I was a drug addict. They'll never work again because they've got criminal records. You know, that's virtually a guarantee that those people will stay addicted because they'll stay disconnected. In Portugal, it's all about making sure addicts are reconnected with society, which is why it's worked so well. The book is Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. I am halfway through it, and it is amazing, embracing, and smart. It's really revolutionary. But before we let you go, let's talk about the word cunt. (laughs) 
I keep getting in trouble with this in America. Right. My mother is from Glasgow. Uh, and in Glasgow, the word cunt is not gendered. It's a neutral word meaning person or thing. So if you said to my mother, mum, how do you get to the post office? She'd go, I, you see that cunt over there? You go right where he is. You walk down, you'll see a bunch of cunts standing there. That's the post office. What you can't say to your mother is, how's your fanny, mom? Uh, that would be catastrophic. Although my mother did pioneer a phrase that I would love to introduce into the wider English language. When my mother is very nervous, she'll say, I can't cope with this. I'm shitting my cunt. Which I think is a beautiful expression. And I, for a long time, I thought it was a Scottish phrase until I went to Scotland and discovered that in fact, no one ever says that. Because it's, and in fact, they look slightly nauseous. You've so. gotten in trouble throwing the C word around. You've, you've dropped the cunt bomb a few times and gotten some pushback. So did Tim Minchin, uh-huh. who's from Australia, where cunt is also not gendered. And, oh, I love him too. Cunt is also not gendered and it's used affectionately. And uh, Leah Delaria is trying to make cunting happen. Uh, to describe something as cunting as a compliment, because why shouldn't it be a compliment to describe something as cunting? Uh, so there's actually some people out there in media, you, serious, Tim Minchin, comedian, Leah Delary, actress, who are trying to save cunt for all of us. They're trying to make cunt a thing that we can embrace. Exactly. When I die, if the New York Times obituary says, Johan Hari, comma, 90, comma, introduced word cunt to America... I would be... In the Scottish sense. That would be a life worth living. The the word is already (laughs) here. It just needs to be redefined and repositioned. Johan Hari, once again, the book is Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone today, Johan. Thank you so much. Hooray. Hi, I am a 24-year-old female living in New York City, and I've been with my current boyfriend for about seven months now, and we're in a really, really happy, wonderful relationship um, except we've been having some issues sexually recently. I had an IED put in a couple of months ago, and because of the hormone change and the pain, I couldn't really have sex for a couple of months. Um, and just as we started to get into the swing of things again, I started to have another kind of pain in me, which I was told by my gynecologist is a cyst, which could be affecting penetration. Um, so. I, uh, you know, have been very upset by this because we can't have sex without me being in pain, and that's what it's been. And so I brought it up to him, and I uh, told my boyfriend, you know, I, I, you know, I still want to pleasure you, and we tried, and he just isn't completely satisfied unless I am being pleasured at the same time. And I don't know how to keep this part of our relationship alive now that. I'm essentially out of commission for who knows how long until I can get this situation figured out. I just want to know what we can do to keep that passion going. Uh, the reason I'm calling you back is uh, I had a follow-up question you know, about the, the problem you're having with your boyfriend. Uh, also, I want to just throw out there, it's really rare for someone to experience like that kind of pain and discomfort uh, and those complications when they get an IUD. And I'm, I hope you have a good gynecologist. Yeah, no, I was going to say, um, I actually, um, in between the time that I uh, called you, I went and I got checked and they said, I might, they think I have a cyst that I had earlier and they went and got a sonogram and then they said that's disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, so now there's nothing left. <laughs> so now I'm kind of back to square one. With you don't know what the vaginal pain is about or what's, what's yeah. causing it? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so there's no cyst. Do you still have the IUD in? 
Yes, I, I still do. And the pain started with the IUD? There was no pain and you were good to go and everything was fine and then you got an IUD and everything's gone south? Um, yeah, I got it and then and then it was painful because it was all crampy. But then everything, I had about a couple of weeks of just, you know, blue skies until this other pain started. Have you thought about taking the IUD out? I have. I'm trying to leave that as the last resort because well, this has well, been the best form of birth control for me. So. Okay, yeah, but all of the problems you're having around vaginal pain began either coincidentally or because of the insertion of the IUD, it would seem to me, and I'm not a doctor, but we can get a doctor on the phone if you like, it would seem to me that uh, sort of a good first idea would be to take the IUD out and see if all this stops since you've already ruled out the cyst and to mm-hmm. re- resort to revert to other forms of birth control. Maybe it's the wrong IUD for you or maybe it was misimplanted or something. Maybe, mm-hmm, have absolutely. You, have you had it checked? Yeah, I had it checked twice by two different doctors. They said everything looks good. It's in place. The strings are where they should be. I've had two different sonograms for that. But your so. but your vag has been out of commission since you got the IUD. <laughs> um, no, not since. I mean, again, not since I had it. I I had a while where the cramps were gone and I was good to go and everything was amazing. And then I started to get this this discomfort mm-hmm. on one side of me. Um, so that's, so yeah, it could very well be that. And that I guess would be the next, you know, course of action. But So what's the prognosis now? You still have this pain and your doctor's like, well, I don't know. Wait it out. Um, Walk it off. Uh, yeah. I'm waiting. We keep missing each other on phone calls and she just wanted to give me that, you know, the results from my sonogram, which were that it was negative for a cyst. Um, so, I, yeah, I guess so. She doesn't really have any other answers. It's kind of like a weighted out thing. Um, I could maybe take this off. I was wondering maybe if size has become now a factor with my partner. Um, he's very large, and I, I don't know if that would have changed anything since I got the IUD. Maybe it's knocking something it shouldn't. I don't know if that is even possible. I don't know. The dick worked for you before. The IUD comes and the dick suddenly didn't get bigger. Right. I don't no, know it's true. Dick would suddenly be a problem unless there's some there's some sort of reaction that you're having uh, tied to the IUD or the hormones or whatever. I would mm-hmm. conservatively, my first tack would be, well, let's get this IUD out since everything went south with the implantation of the IUD and see if things right themselves. Okay. You don't want to be, you know, not all forms of birth control work for all women and you have to, you know, experiment to find the one that, that works best for you. And it just doesn't sound like the idea is working very well for you. All that aside, uh, I would recommend that you Google University of British Columbia and Volvodynia. I'm mispronouncing it V-U-L-V-O-D-Y-N-I-A. It's a clinic at the University of British Columbia where they treat uh, vaginal and, and vulvar pain. Yeah, which can be a okay. real problem for a lot of women. And you may be able to get a consultation or find information at their website uh, that, that can help you and even help your gynecologist. It's not, you know, the reason there are this, a couple of specialized clinics in the country for uh, vaginal pain is because a lot of people don't know about it or know how to treat it. Not that much is actually known about it. Now there's research being done into it. It's being taken seriously. Uh, so look that up and, and look into that. I wanted to talk, though, about your boyfriend and his his big pout. When you say that you're not able to have sex and he's upset because he can't pleasure you, are you not able, because of the pain, to have oral sex, to masturbate, to climax? Or is it just vaginal intercourse you can't do? 
Um, I it's definitely just vaginal intercourse, but I've been it's kind of like taken over in the sense where I don't just want anything down there right now, you know, until I figure out and I'm sure I could probably get into it, but it's I don't know, it's kind of become a mental issue mm-hmm. too, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So we have to figure out now again, in the meantime we've been able to I, I have been able to orally please him, and he's actually enjoyed it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what clicked over. I think he said something that, well, if this is the only way we can be together intimately right now, I'm going to figure out how to completely relax myself and immerse myself into this. That, um, that's good. That, I, then, then praise yeah. to your boyfriend for no longer pouting. Because sometimes <laughs> what happens here is, you know, a woman is experiencing vaginal pain upon penetration and takes penetration off the menu, but oral is is good to go both ways. Mutual masturbation, frottage, which is external rubbing, outer course. Uh, She's down for all that, but the guy's like, well, if I can't pleasure you, I'm not interested. And what he means is if I can't stick my dick in you, I'm not interested. He could still pleasure you. You can still pleasure each other. It's just penis and vaginas off the menu until this problem is solved. And you don't want to be with a guy if you're experiencing vaginal pain who is so selfish as to guilt trip you or or withhold the other forms of pleasure that you two can share to leverage you into consenting to or going for vaginal intercourse that hurts you. Because that's not a guy who's concerned with your pleasure. That's a guy who's concerned with his dick. Right? Exactly. Okay. And hopefully he's not that guy. And I would encourage yeah. you. I would encourage you to love your pussy <laughs> and what it's capable <laughs> of right now, because you know it would be sad if you were in. You know, it is sad. You can't have the penis and vagina sex that you enjoy. You can't have intercourse. But if right. your pussy's good to go for outer course and mutual masturbation and oral sex, go there. Go there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I need it. I feel myself getting stressed and anxious and all these that I didn't have in my life before because I can't fulfill this need. Because you can't, you can't climax right now. Or you're not, yeah. But you can. You're not allowing yourself to because you're having a sad about, about the penis and vagina being off the menu. And, you know, who knows? Maybe climaxing and could, it could help. I'm, I'm not <laughs> telling you that this is what a doctor would say. But maybe, you know, if, it is, if there's any sort of psychological component to the pain, maybe, you know, ramping back up without the stress of penetration and enjoying yourself again without the stress of penetration could help unlock it, could help get you there. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Are you masturbating solo? No, I haven't been recently because I, I need a combination of, you know, clitoral and vaginal and I can't do it. I don't want to hurt myself. You know, Mm -hmm. I guess it's all, again, it's more of a, issue that has come off of this pain. Right. Anything. Well, I would encourage you then, uh, if you can get your hands on one, to get a really powerful vibrator, get a like a Hitachi magic wand, because there's no such thing as a vaginal. What, what is that brand? What's that thing? Uh, a, a, a Hitachi magic wand. Hitachi. H-I-T, oh, okay. Uh, A-C-H-I. Um, there's no such thing as a vaginal orgasm. Um, there's only clitoral orgasms. And when you're experiencing pleasure because of penetration and you, you know, you think this is vaginal. This is like the vagina stuff that's clicking. It's just, you're, you're stimulating the, uh, internal, uh, chunks of your clitoral tissues, which run along the vaginal right. canal. It's still a clitoral orgasm right. and you can stimulate that, uh, those chunks of your vagina, your clitoral wings, your clitoral roots, whatever you want to call it, your clitoral shaft, 
um, that's inside your body with a really powerful vibrator that's outside your body that's pressed onto your external clitoris or your uh, mounds pubis. Um, And you can direct some vibrations at that part of your clitoral structure that you've previously stimulated, you know, through the vagina without having to go through your vagina to get there and stimulate it. Okay, perfect. That sounds wonderful. Do all those things. And and I think you should really do your first, you know, dozen orgasms as you ramp back up alone. So there's no even subconscious or lingering anything sense that, oh, this is a moment that could – he would rather be having penetrative sex with me. Right. So you're not right. feeling like a failure. You're not feeling like right. conscious about what's off the menu, but you're just enjoying what is on the menu, which is just you and your hand and your vibrator right now. Yeah. It's not about failure. You're not failing at sex. Yeah. Intimacy, pleasure, and get in touch with a, a vaginal pain clinic and get a consultation online. They can do them via Skype. Also, get a consultation. And in the meantime, continue to enjoy your vagina and what it is capable of giving you right now. Don't punish yourself and punish your vagina by not allowing it to give you anything or you to give it anything because it isn't giving you that thing, that one thing, which is only one thing it can give you, only one thing it can do. Right, right, absolutely. Good luck. Ah, That makes so much sense. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. Hey, Dan. I'm a tech savvy at risk youth. Uh, just calling in response to the woman who got aggressively hit on by an arsonist at the bar in episode 433. Uh, she asked whether anybody ever dates people who uh, went to jail. And I thought that it would be worth noting um, that for a lot of America, running into folks who are formerly incarcerated is really common. Those folks are called black folks. I'm not black. I didn't sound like she was. I know you're not, Dan, and I think most of your viewers and callers are white based on my impression of their voices. And I just think it'd be a good opportunity to mention the fact that we have an insane criminal justice system in this country. You talk about it occasionally, but not too often. Obviously, one of the reasons I tune in is because I love your politics and your commitment to social justice and radicalism at times. So just a good opportunity to say, you know, it's really fucked up that one out of three black men... uh, between the ages of 20 and 29 goes to jail and that we, they represent, they have a six times higher incarceration rate than white people and that we have drug policies and criminal justice policies more generally that are historically intentionally racist and continue to be racist structurally. uh, And then we need to fight to change that. You're a great advocate for drug um, smart policies. And um, there's a huge racial justice component to that. So let's all be aware of the fact that there's many prisoners, uh, former prisoners who are, out and about, and we need to be integrated into society, um, and we need better policies for that, and we need to be aware of it as white, uh, socially aware listeners of the Southern Blackcast. Hi, just wanted to give a message to the caller that was considering um, talking to the guy in his lacrosse team about the girl that he raped. I don't think he realizes how much impact he can have within the rape culture. And I would encourage him also to call out other teammates if they make jokes in the locker room or around him about uh, violence toward women or raping women, because his position, he can really do a lot more good than a lot of women can. And I would encourage other male athletes out there, just men in general, if they hear um, someone talk about, you know, violence toward women or that's so funny or rape jokes to say, hey, dude, that's not cool. And if you don't think it's funny, then why are you, why are you telling us an unfunny joke? 
Hi, comments for the gal on episode 433, having trouble with the online dating profile listing GGG, and she wants open or kink-type relationships. My online profile, my first sentence says, I practice ethical non-monogamy. So I just put it right up front. I get about four or five uh, hits a week that visit my profile. I get zero messages which means there's four to five people every week who are not wasting my time because I just put it right up front in my profile. And we're going to leave it there. Thanks, as always, to all of our Magnum subscribers. We love you guys. This is me, officially, symbolically, and at a great distance, pumping all of your lives. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. The Hump Tour, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival curated by me, is uh, on the road. We are coming to Philadelphia February 21st. San Francisco, actually, we are sold out the week we are in San Francisco. But there are tickets available for Chicago, April 17th and 18th. Cleveland, April 25th. L.A., March 12th through 14th, and you can come to the dates in San Francisco and rush and see if you can't get a ticket. Go to humptour.com for more information about the Hump Tour and information about making and submitting films to Hump. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Johan Hari on Twitter at Johan, J-O-H-A-N-N, Hari, H-A-R-I, 101. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for telling me.